hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Thank God you're a professional. <laughs> In three, two, one, go. Ah, welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife at the Doctor Who Commentary Podcast. We have been drawn down from our astral plane down to Vortis, and we are ready to talk about episode two of The Web Planet, which is called The Zarbi. E, e, e. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So I think things are about to get a whole lot weirder, aren't they? Very much so. Yeah. Although, would it surprise the pair of you two to know that before we head into this episode, I have a question for you both. I'm stunned. Far away. Um, what is your preference in the William Hartnell era? The historical or the science fiction tale? Or the sideways tale? Because they did those back then as well. Oh, that's stumped you. I think I have two answers, I think, um, oh. because it changes as they go th- as he goes through. Um, I think right at the beginning, if you ignore the tribe of gum, um, the historicals are generally better. But by the time you get into the end, kind of more invested in the science fiction. Having said that, I don't think there's a, a, I don't think there's a bad William Hartnell historical. No, I agree. I agree. And even, even the tribe of gum, I think it has fantastic moments. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And it's a re- it was a really good way to, to sort of reintroduce the, the weirdness after having hit them um, front and center with an unearthly child. I do think that there are poor science fiction yeah, for stories sure. in in the William Hartnell era. Any example? But not a hu- not a huge number. Um, I would say the Space Museum. Brilliant episode one. All the rest could be condensed into a into a single part. I oh, know somebody who has something to say about that, you know, but he's not here, so don't worry about it. Um, Sensorites again, some nice ideas, but very slow. Um, big chunks of Dalek master plan could be cut out. They really don't need to go to ancient Egypt. What about you, um, Sly? Well, uh, <laughs> um, I would say exactly the same thing, actually. I think the <laughs> early historicals are magnificent um, and really unbeatable but they were not the ones that I liked sort of in book form as a, as a child. It was all the science fiction ones that really grabbed me and I was really interested in. And the historicals looked boring to me sort of growing up in the 80s. And I think that was sort of the perception that you were given of Doctor Who, that the historicals were, were worthy, but um, oh no, no one watched them, no one really liked them, and they were all about the monoids and all the science fiction adventures or whatever. But I've come to appreciate those a lot as an adult. I've really, really loved those. So, but again, there's something about 
Hartnell science fiction, I think, which is really interesting. And they're trying, they're going for big ideas and big concepts rather than just always sort of alien race of the week that's invading somewhere, um, which they settle on in, in season four and five, particularly. So there's just, again, and anything goes um, feeling to this whole era and they're going to try it whatever and however and i yeah i like that very much about these three years i, I think yes, because it's, it is i was going to say it on. is right to the end of the three years because the savages um which is a, a story i really like and I, I know it's not particularly well thought of um but it's a really nice story and it's doing something different yeah, and even sort of the war machines coming after that is something that Doctor Who has not really done before. It's just that that becomes the template for yeah, what comes for sure. all the time afterwards. Even where you end the era with the 10th planet and those ghoulish Cybermen, like they hadn't done anything like that before either. So right up until the last minute, they were innovating. Well, gentlemen, shall we perhaps tip into the web planet episode two where the innovation is well riding high i'm ready yep then simon whichever simon is so confusing <laughs> is it me am i counting us in yes please <laughs> okay all right are. so if you're ready for the zabi in five four three two one go off we go so i'm assuming then the ratings were not quite as high for episode two i think it sustained it pretty well i'll have to look this up now because otherwise i'm going to get my facts wrong and that was so hard you surprised i know i have not come prepared i'm so sorry doctor, who. <laughs> oh, my God. doctor exton now you are my new co-host okay right. <laughs> uh, changes so quickly <laughs> you get another Simon in, yeah, and I'm I'm out. That's fine. Oh dear! Right, what's occurring? I've lost the, all track of the plot. So we got we we had a a four prong um, cliffhanger. So Barbara's about to fall into a pool of acid. That's right. Um, Vicky is stuck in the TARDIS that has vanished, so we don't know where she's ended up. And Ian is stuck in a great big net. See, I was paying attention. And we're about to be introduced to the Monoptera, aren't we, for the yes. first time. So, um, Simon Exton, what do you mm. think of the Monoptera? I think they look fantastic. Um, now, The Web Planet was actually the first William Hartnell story I saw um, way, way, way back in the day before any of the VHS releases, about the only way that you could get to see... Doctor Who stuff was either turn up to conventions um, or try and persuade somebody who was able to copy tapes to, to send yeah. you a tape. And I, I managed to badger somebody um, to, to send me a Hartnell and a Troughton, and I got the Web Planet and the Crotons, which is why both of them have a, a, a special place in my heart, but particularly the Web Planet. I absolutely loved it. Um, my first, my first introduction was the um, the Radio Times twentieth anniversary special, 
mm-hmm. um, where they did a list of uh, of all of the Doctor Who stories to that point, and their description of the web planet was the monster story to end all monster stories. Mm-hmm. Um, with not just one, but five different alien races. And that was the entire description. And it just sounded fascinating. Um, And that came out at the same time as the five doctors was being screened. And that was the, that was really the thing that turned me from somebody who enjoys watching Doctor Who and has watched it my entire life to, I am a fan of Doctor Who. And there is a massive history about this that I want to know about. Um, and there are all these stories that I want to hear about. And it, it was as a result of that, that I joined Duas back in 83. Did the story live up to, obviously you had an idea of what the story was going to be like, given that mm. description. Did it live up to what you, what you were hoping it was going to be? Oh, hello. We have a monoptera. <laughs> we do. Just bursting up onto the screen there. That was a good moment. I've been having lessons from what's her name? Who, who did the... Winter. Rosalinda Winter. <laughs> um, I think that's nice that they give them body language, though, you know? Like, like, yeah, it, it, it's kind of proto-voguing. Yeah, just an, an extension from the costume, you know? It's, it's a, just a real attempt to suggest that they're... Do you know what's amazing? is later on, when they come swooping in on the wires, Yeah, that weird mm-hmm. music playing in the background. It's incredible. But that's what I, that's one of the things that the um that the new series does now, doesn't it? Where they have coaches to do the alien movement so that all of the alien races are sort of well fought through. So all of this started in the 60s and we mocked it for years, saying, Oh, insect movement by Rosalind de Winter. But actually, they're doing right. something to create a credible and different kind of alien race that some of the other alien races afterwards would have done well to to sort of emulate are you attempting to suggest that the half are as memorable as the monoptera i'll say that as a no (laughs) (laughs) no but the monoptera are beautiful they they've even got they've made them with wings that actually extend which is just wonderful it's just that attention to detail really makes them Oh, oh wowzers, that's a model shot, isn't it? The TARDIS being dragged across that sort of smoky plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are trying, aren't they? Like, yeah, like, it's ambitious. I don't, I don't mean it that. It's fantastic. A... Yeah, it really does. Because... Okay, okay. Well, this is the point where I want to ask you about Richard Martin and his merits or otherwise as a director. And I'm going to throw this out to Dr. Exton first. Looking at it dispassionately, um, there are bit, there are bits of this where the direction could be tightened up. I talked in the last episode about how we could do without the Zabi in it and having a, 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 a proper monster reveal at the end. This would be a fantastic monster reveal where you've just got Vicky looking up at the scanner with the Zabi pe- peering in and there's just all that reaction on her face. She, Maureen O'Brien did that brilliantly. Yes. And that would, make, that would make a fantastic monster reveal. Um, but we didn't get that. Um, I don't think he's the greatest director that the, uh, the show has ever seen. I think they... I think they needed somebody with a bit more, or could have done with somebody with a bit more oomph. 
and a bit more vision for that. And somebody like Waris Hussein would have been fantastic. But they didn't have Waris Hussein. They had Richard Martin. I, th I think he does a good, competent job. And the inventiveness of the plot and the visuals cover up for degrees of slow direction. My, um... Oh, this bit where they're just bemused by Barbara's hair. Yeah, that's not wonderful. My uh, my biggest objection to Richard Martin is that in the special features of the chase, and I think this as well, he is lamenting the fact that you know he didn't have a lot of money to realise because he had really beautiful ideas of how this should look, hmm. you know, um, and that he didn't have the time to get it right, but. You know, they gave him all the blockbusters of season two, didn't they? They gave him Dalek Invasion of Earth, they gave him The Chase, and they gave him The Web Planet. So that's the that's the big hitters of this season, really. Yeah. And I don't think he's up to directing those. And you look at the work that Douglas Adams is doing in the same Douglas season. Douglas Camfield, you mean? Oh, sorry. Did I say Douglas Adams? <laughs> I'm so sorry. He was a director long before he was a writer. No. Um, <laughs> But with the same money, with the same time, and it's far more polished, you know. And and so I, I don't think it's entire. I don't think he can blame time and money. I do think it's down to the competence of the director. And there's scenes in this, like where the Zabi walks into the camera, where they Ian and Freston go underground, and you can hear someone laughing in the background, like things like that should be. They should never have made it to the screen, no matter how few cuts they can have. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that I think this is completely incompetent. I think they do a good stab. I question whether they handed it to the right man, personally. It's really interesting because he is, uh, Richard Martin is a brilliant director on film where he does have more time and he does have more control and he can cut a lot more easily. So you think of the Dalek and Mechanoid um, fight at the end of the chase or those scenes running around London in the Dalek invasion of Earth. And he suddenly that seems on a different, seems almost like a different director to the to the rest of the stories that you're watching. So he, he does have a flair on when he's got time and sort of resources to do that. I think his studios always seem a bit fraught and um, I don't know whether he's just sort of trying to push it just a bit too far and he's just a, um, a bit out of his comfort zone and can't quite get what he wants onto the screen. But it always feels like there's nothing is ever quite right when he's on videotape in the studio trying to put things together. I mean, he always casts well. And the cast of this is, they, they do magnificently. What is going on here with the TARDIS being dragged into that uh, thing with all the tentacles reaching out? <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. Again, see, there is imagination here that comes from the script and he is doing his best to bring that up, but trying to... Is there an inference that this whole planet is alive? Because like the, the 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 kind of the evil cancer that's under the ground, it's part of the planet, isn't it? Um, it's grown, it's grown from the fa the fabric of the planet, and there's a bit later on where they say when it's grown right the way around the planet, it'd be too late. 
That's um, a good idea, isn't it? And it's interesting that you say cancer because the name carcinome was taken from carcinoma, a description of cancer. Oh, oh, oh yes. yes. You know what? You know, I'll bring the smart sometimes, not often. <laughs> it's it's... courtesy Wikipedia, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have taken the idea from Maureen O'Brien. Who mentions that in one of the special features actually she says you know this kind of evil cancer that's growing at the heart of this planet but that is like that, that is a staggering idea yeah i i think yeah. bill strutton is is very imaginative his his ideas are are big and alien and imagining a world that has a cancer that is growing and has changed the world and has forced sort of the population away and has taken control of the animals is is just wonderful. Well, talking about Bill Strutton, um, Dr. Exton, have you read the novel of this, The Web Planet? Um, yes, quite a few times. And I, I never have. It, how how does it read? Um, it, pretty well. It it does expand on some bits of the story. It's quite a long time since I've read it, um, but I. It was at, it was the novel was actually my first introduction to the the story proper before I saw it. Right. And, oh, okay. Oh, and that that's true for almost all of the uh, the sixties Doctor Who, um, because I've, I've read the targets before any of the uh, any of the uh, the uh, VHSs were available. Yeah, it was well, the only way we had to had to experience yeah. them, wasn't it? Sorry, go on. I was going to say, it's kind of why the historicals were a bit unknown territory for me when I I came to watch them, because most of the historicals weren't um, in that run of the the Terence Dick's um, very short target novels. Mm. They they tended to come along later, and you had Donald Cotton doing uh, the Romans and the Mythmakers and the Gunfighters, and they're all brilliant books. But they're all they're all good series. Yeah, um, and then John Lucarotti came and did did all of his, but that yeah. wasn't until sort of the mid eighties at the earliest. So it was only the the Crusaders was was the was the one, wasn't it originally? So well, it's one of the original three, wasn't it? It was yeah. it was this the Crusade and the. Um, and the Daleks. And an exciting adventure with the Daleks. Yeah. And is... there were the three ones in the 60s. And that then it was late, sort of mid 70s by the time you get in the Terran Stick stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you, your original like realization of this story was in your head, you know, you you yeah. printed all the pictures yourself. So I find that even more extraordinary than that you then went on and watched this. And you, you were as impressed as you now. I'm being wicked, sorry. Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I've complained about Richard Martin, but there was an extraordinary shot there from above. He shot it from right above the set of the Zarbies all surrounding the Doctor and Ian. Yeah. That, that was quite impressive. And it looks fantastic. And there was a shot earlier that was really, really nice of Vicky and the TARDIS shot through the, um, the time rotor. Yes. It just looked wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if he did have... Okay, maybe, maybe if he did have more time. 
and certainly more money. Like so, you were saying about when he's shooting on film, and those sequences of the of the Monoptera flying in—that's on film, isn't it? That is, yeah. It so does, it does look a cut above those sequences. I think that's where his vision is best realised in those sequences there. Yeah, I, some with some of the '60s directors, it would be interesting to see what they'd have done in the 70s and the 80s when there is a bit more time and a bit more budget and see if they could have done something how they would have approached it differently like i i wouldn't want to um ever complain about the special effects of classic doctor who but like if this was being done now it would look extraordinary wouldn't it like like the planet would you know it would be tendrils everywhere you'd have butterflies flying about all over the place you know it would be visually astonishing i think yeah and i the set designer talks on the on the dvd with richard martin about how um they wanted the carlson home sets to be really organic and blobby but they were constrained by the materials that they had to make it because they had to erect it in the studio. So you couldn't do what you could do now and sort of do that, do a very organic kind of set sort of fairly easily. But then they were, they had to have something physical that was there. And so you have to have edges and you have to have things standing up sort of rigid and you can't, and as I said, they had to recreate it each week back in the studio. They had to put the set back up, so they had to have something that could physically be the same each week. And I think they do really well with the the outside because there are tendrils growing into it. Yeah, it, it's a very three dimensional structure, and you get a, a real feel, feeling of sort of looking looking down through that corridor uh, in the, the carcinome of, of, a, of a maze in the way that a lot of sets that try and do the same thing later on in the show's history just don't manage i mean you you compare this to omega citadel in the three doctors oh my yeah <laughs> which is really poor design <laughs> isn't it it's like creme brulee doesn't it honestly <laughs> and this has a ceiling yes which oh, you don't get very often yeah. I'm a whore for a ceiling in Doctor yeah. Who. <laughs> I really am. They're so rare. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, we, we talked over it, but we just had the most amazing shot of a monster going into the TARDIS yeah. and seeing it go in through the police box and see it from the console room as well, what, which what is just it, incredible. The, are the, the hostile displacement circuits on or something? Why does it have a little it, a breakdown and then come running out again? Um, I'm throwing that over to Dr. Exton. <laughs> I'm assuming that it's because it gets freaked out because as it goes into the TARDIS, the um, the Animus's control drops. Ah. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, mm-hmm. I love this crystalline communications device here. And, you know, initially I thought, oh, look at this. And they're, they're kind of like playing about with the crystals. But actually... He does it like several times and he does it exactly the same way each time. So they have actually fought through this prop yeah. and how it works. It's really and the, cool. the whole contrast between the the, the surface vortice uh, shots where they, there's the, uh, the lens Vaseline and everything. And okay, you, you can laugh that it looks very primitive. And 
it it does look primitive. Um, they were working with what they had at the time. There's a real contrast between that and the indoor sets. But I'll tell you what, Dr. Exxon, there's nothing wrong with using Vaseline to get the desired effect, you know? <laughs> I am aware of this. <laughs> <laughs> You're a filthy, filthy man. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> see, look, now I've got someone who's cheering me on. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a change, doesn't it, to be told <laughs> off? <laughs> Uh, I was I was going to ask you about the sound effects, right? Because obviously we listen to this with the sound on, or at least I am. And um, I've heard complaints, you know, that the Zarbi sound effects can be a little bit grating after a while. But actually, I think, especially in 60s Who, where, you know, they don't always have the money, the sound effects go a long way to creating the atmosphere and the mood of the story. Oh, God, yeah. I, you watch something like Galaxy 4, yeah, and the sound effects are just wonderful. Or the Crotons. Oh yes, where there isn't a musical score, but this Brian Hodgson is providing one. What about the Mind and, Robber with the the yeah. white robots and the, the the Clockwork Soldiers? Yeah, and this is again the time before synthesizers, so they're doing this with cut up sounds and tape and loops, and on a very very fast turnover and he's making the series sound incredibly distinctive and it's no wonder it sort of influenced a generation of of people you know i'm not sure about this uh, this action set piece we're getting <laughs> whack the zarby if john's got martin what for look he's got it look he's got the the thing inside his mouth <laughs> It looks like the, the whole point is that they, the Monoptera aren't supposed to be fighters. They're supposed to be peaceful. They weren't able to get rid of the, the animals to start with. They've had to learn the concept of fighting and they're not all that good at it. That's true. And you know, if they had the money to do like a swarm of ants, you know, just all coming all over each other, you know, like, you know, like a swarm does. And doesn't he say like he's seen like a swarm of ants eat through a house? Yeah. Yes. Like if they'd had the money to realise something like that, it would be absolutely extraordinary. And there was a bit there where um, the venom grubs have killed one of the monoptera, and it's just lying there on the ground. And the zabi comes in and is just stomping all over the wings. Yeah, he literally stands on him, doesn't he? Yeah. What, yeah. About what they do now? This bit's horrible. And what's fabulous about this scene—well, not fabulous, sorry, it's horrific—is it's all through Jacqueline Hill's acting, isn't it, uh, yeah. about what's happening. And I think that is scarier. Like not showing us what's going on is actually my imagination can go pretty far, you know. Really, really yeah, effective. And the, the the bit in this where she was wearing the uh, like the gold collar and under control, and he pulls the gold collar off, and you can see him struggling with the the control to be able to drop it. That was beautifully done. Do you, um, are the are there villain grubs on the skateboards or something? Because I tell you what, they get across those so. set at a fair old lick. I thought there was somebody crawling away underneath. Well, there's, there's a scene later on where one just goes straight across the set, it's amazing. Yeah, there we go. Jacqueline Hill's just horrified, she's so good. 
that is just uh, that is horrific yeah in a sort of hidden horror kind of way just the whole idea of it and uh, Hartnell here where he's trying non-verbal communication with the Zabi is the doctor trying to think his way through this situation isn't it because that was the, the very hell... first that was the very first bit of this story I ever saw what? when they put it bizarrely on a trailer for Silver Nemesis in 1988 really yeah so vividly remember the bit where Ian says no the doctor's not getting through to them Oh, look, here we go. Come along and drop this hairdryer or whatever it is. Oh, oh. Can someone do the line? Come on. Why do you come now? It's a great voice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. And Escape it's to Danger. Well. Oh. oh, that's a proper Escape target to big title, that is. That sounds like a Terry Nation title to me. <laughs> oh, it's one of Terrence Dix's favourite chapter titles for his target books. Oh, okay. Well, then to end <coughs> the episode, because um, I've got a couple of minutes, I want to ask you both do you like the individual episode titles? Uh, or do you, and do you think like when they were dropped and we just had a, you know, one story title, that was the right time to do it? Uh, Dr. Exton. Um, briefly, yes and yes. And, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I do like them. And it's like I was saying at the beginning, um, it must have been, it must be really exciting to start a new story and not know how many episodes it was going to be. Is this going to, is this going to run for 12 episodes or is it going to be over in two? Or is it just going to be a a filler one piece that goes on to, um, to something else at, at the end of it? Is it going to be a, a standard for by the by the time you uh, come into the end of season two is this historical going to stay a historical or is it going to um end up with some sort of science fiction weirdness to it um yeah i like the individual story titles i i mean i, I love pretty much all of classic who so I, I like the the thing that it crystallized into in series four um, and I, I don't think they could have sustained the level of inventiveness that they were doing in the first three years, pretty much throughout the whole of the Hartnell run. Um, but I love that level of inventiveness. And I think the individual episode titles really encapsulate that. Sai? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, it was always billed, wasn't it, in the Radio Times as an adventure in, in time and space or space and time. And that was all it was. You never knew how long it was going to be. Uh, What I like about the individual episode titles is it means that we've had now nearly 60 years of being able to argue about what the stories are actually called (laughs) overall, which is always a joy. So, And we are still arguing that one to this day. So it doesn't matter how many pieces of paperwork there are. No one still has a definitive answer on all of them. And we will all disagree on on that so i mean that that's good i mean i think as we hit formulate more formulate doctor who having an a story title and individual parts makes perfect sense but here again we're freewheeling it's the early years we can do anything and and we we are and i I think some of the individual episode titles leave a lot to be desired terry nation are you kidding me (laughs) they're some of my favorites the death of time the brink of destruction 
I mean, no, 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 no. I think no, no, no. It's more Terry Nation's Coronas of the Sun. I mean, it sounds good, but it has no meaning for the whole episode. Are you telling me you wouldn't turn up for the episode called Coronas of the Sun? Whether you were hoodwinked or not. <laughs> I'd have probably turned up anyway. It's Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. um, and the other the other thing that there's that you can have an argument about with in some cases is just what constitutes a story and how long is it? Yeah. Because I am I'm an absolute believer in that the first four episodes is two separate stories. And an well, unearthly child pass, uh, is an individual pass, uh, story, and then the tribe of gum is, is a three-episode historical. Yeah, and because okay, so yeah, and you can argue it because it's the same production team, same author, but not it's not necessarily the same story. And in a way, you can argue that the arc is two different <gasps> stories. I was just gonna yeah. say that. I was literally <laughs> just gonna say that. I was waiting mm-hmm. for a pause. Yeah, actually, you could kind of have fun with this, couldn't you? And 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 split up. Yeah, and because the stories are all there's more often than not a cliffhanger into the next story. It is That's one continuous narrative, yeah. continuous narrative. Um, and actually, when on the Exton Moss experiment, when we did the arc, we've only done the first two episodes as a contained story oh. because that was our. We, we did two post-lockdown episodes when we were first able to get together after about 18 months to, to do some recording. Um, and the, the first two episodes of the arc were, our, were out of lockdown. Doctor Who. Amazing. I'm, I'm gonna, guess what else I'm going to listen to tomorrow now? And we also <laughs> did Come Back, Mrs. Noah, which is... <gasps> oh, no! Oh, my God, I bloody love that show. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> when they go up into space and her ass is all over that set, bumping into all those concerts. Oh, it's the funniest oh, thing. that electronic chicken with the tie beads coming out of his ass. <laughs> I, I, I'm missed out here, obviously. The Come Back, Mrs. Noah podcast, coming soon. <laughs> It's only six episodes. It will fly by. <laughs> or is it seven? 